Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. Today, I'm having a gas with Chris Geringer, a mastering engineer at Sterling Sound in New Jersey. Chris was an excellent guest, and I've been keen to talk to more mastering engineers because mastering is something of a misunderstood or completely not understood art, uh, even amongst people who spend all their time thinking about music production. What mastering is and what it's for is seldom easily explained. And usually when you ask different mastering engineers, you get a different answer. So I asked Ruben Cohen at Lurson Mastering, and Ruben said, it's whatever you need to do to make the music connect more with the listener, which is an interesting answer, but it, it doesn't have a technical detail to hang on. People kind of want the answer of, what are you doing when you're mastering? What are you doing to the audio? What is it that you're trying to manipulate to get out of it? Now, Chris, like Ruben, is highly qualified to talk about this. Chris has mastered, uh, what's it called, sorry, Dua Lipa? Future Nostalgia. Future Nostalgia. I was going to say Nostalgia Ultra, which is Frank Ocean's debut mixtape. Um, Future Nostalgia, Desire I Want to Turn Into You by Caroline Polachek, which I quite like. Um, and you know what? Go look at his resume. There's a billion, well, there's not a billion, there's loads of records on there, really, really good ones. Knows what he's talking about. What I was able to derive from the conversation, which you're about to hear, was that a mix engineer thinks about the relationship between the different tracks in the mix and how to balance and blend them, how the kick goes with the bass, how the kick and the bass in the low end balance against the lower mid-range, the upper mid-range, and so on. That's what the mix engineer does. The mastering engineer, as far as I've been able to gather, and let's see if this conversation bears that out, their job is to think about how your mix has a relationship with everyone's listening devices and playback systems. And so, let's just go straight on to it, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Geringer. Uh, today, I'm really happy to be having a guest with Chris Geringer. Is that how I say it? Correct. Very good. And um, I've just actually been, uh, I'm looking up here, because I've got a monitor up here, I've just been watching your mix of the masters to uh, get me primed for this. Um, how did you feel doing that, by the way? Because uh, how, does that, how, does that, how does that work? Do they approach you? Do they say, we've heard, you know, one of your albums and we'd like you to talk about it? How, how do you get involved in that? Yeah, they approached me um, to do it. Um, it's kind of cool. You know, they, I think they do a really great job. When, you know, the entire production, the, the whole process is really cool. Um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I really, every time I'm, every time I'm watching one of the classes, I have to remind myself, I'm like, this is a $300 a year subscription. And, you know, oh, yeah. a, a course at a university is like, in, in your part of the world, it's about 25 grand a year. So... I can't believe how high quality the information is that's coming out of Mix with the Masters, considering the cost. Yeah, yeah. They, ha they have a really great team that shows up every time. I've done it. Randy Merrill's done it. Adanya Valencia's done it. Joe Laporta's done it here. So they've been here four times, and you know they've been really great every time they show up. And for, the, for those who don't know, uh, Chris, where is here? Here is uh, Edgewater, New Jersey. <laughs> this is where this we have two Sterling Sounds. We have one here in Edgewater, New Jersey, and one in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, Edgewater Sound. I was in episode one of the Mix of the Masters class. I was you were talking about the rebuild. Although the, the the did you move to a new building? Is that what happened? Yes, we were in Chelsea Market in Manhattan for eighteen years, and um, Google bought the building, and you know. 
they, they gave us two choices, pay a million dollars a year in rent or move. So we were like, see ya. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a real changing of the guard moment, isn't it? Insofar as I don't know the history of Chelsea Market in Manhattan. but So Chelsea, Chelsea Market was originally the Nabisco, um, the original Nabisco factory, cookies. Wow. Um, and it's a historic building. And then it became, I guess at some point in the early 2000s, they opened it up for like retail stores and things downstairs. And it's a very big tourist attraction. And it was kind of cool being there for a little while. Um, but our space was amazing. It was 21,000 square feet. We had 13 rooms there. It was just incredible. And uh, it was fun to be there. But, you know, when the new rent numbers came in, it was like, all right, bye. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so you moved to New Jersey, which is very close to my we're heart. Right because... Yeah, we're right across the river. You know, I can, really... see, I can see Manhattan from here, so. Yeah, yeah, I'll 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 be there in September, so um, so I, I have no point to finish that with. But I was going to say that we're in this studio. All of us uh, have just been watching The Sopranos this year, and so we're really keen on New Jersey now, and then starting to kind of we don't really understand much about the the cultural difference. What happens on the you know between the two sides of the river? Is is there a big difference in like small but large differences in how people talk and behave and things like that? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, Manhattan is so diluted now with non New Yorkers living there. You know, like, it's funny, we all we all joke about like, kids who move from Iowa to Bushwick, and they're like, I'm a New Yorker. It's like, no, you're from Iowa, right? You're just, yeah. living, you're just temporarily living here. You have to be from here to be a New Yorker. And you think there are fewer so, and fewer people who are from New York these days? Yes, Manhattan has totally, um, I mean, since COVID, it's changed. But before that, it was changing. Brooklyn is kind of like the new place for young kids to live. It has been for, God, almost 20 years now. Yep. And New, new Jersey's, <clears throat> everybody makes fun of New Jersey until they decide they've had enough of Manhattan and they move to New Jersey. So. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching well, the um, documentary about the uh, origin of DFA Records with um, James Murphy and LCD Sound System and all those guys. And I believe it was kicking off in the um, East Village. Have I got that right, in New York? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and at like 2001. And now I believe, well, I know that James Murphy, at least, is headquartered in Brooklyn. And so it, you can, uh, my intuition said, right, whatever was cool about the East Village has now moved over to Brooklyn. Yeah, the Eastville. I lived in the East Village for a little while. It's expensive to live there. Um, it's fun. It's really cool. But the whole cool movement has moved to Brooklyn. Yeah, and for it's going further out. It was Williamsburg, which was right over the bridge into Brooklyn. Now it's Bushwick, Bed Stuy. It's just moving out. Why is that? Is that just price? Price. Yeah, it's it's getting very expensive. I mean, you know, you think about it globally. Manhattan is definitely one of the most expensive areas to live in. Yeah, well, so, you know, we we visit. We're from Manchester here um, in Gas Music. Uni and United or City? Oh, controversial question. So I am blessedly I get myself off the hook because I'm not like a devoted football fan. My brother's United, my stepfather's United. Um, okay, I was really... about to close. I was going to close the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. This ha this is this this debate rages on in our office all the time because we've got some hardcore football fans out here, and. Yeah. The thing I hear about what the the criticism I hear of City, who of course just won the treble for all the historians who maybe for some reason watching this podcast, um, the joke with City is that 
you know, yes, they're winning trophies now, but that's since they have been acquired by, you know, Etihad uh, Airways, a huge, huge, extremely well-funded Middle Eastern conglomerate. They have, you know, a different stadium. Main Road was historically the kind of grassroots stadium. They just got this big fancy stadium 15 years ago. They've got new ownership, new management, new players. And I'm like, to what degree is it the same team that it was at one point? It's not, and they cheated too. So I just want to put that out there. Asterisk cheated. We got it so. from Gary. Are you are you are you a soccer fan, as they say over there? Yes, I'm a football fan. Okay, and you're United. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, Aaron, one of my producers here, he's Liverpool, so we'll just keep that. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, off the table. Yeah. We'll keep but, that. Yeah. Um, let's uh, you know. Let's figure out what led to you being someone who liked soccer and, and, and lived in the East Village. You know, what, what began the journey for you, Chris? How did you get into mastering? Because I have always been curious. Mastering doesn't seem to be something that people would, when they're 16, 17, they go, that's what I'm going to do with my career. Am I wrong about that? Or No, I had no idea. what You know, when I was a teenager, I knew, I kind of knew I wanted to be in the music business or something. Film actually was a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the d- desire for a while to be a cinematographer. I mean, I still do when I grow up, I guess. Um, but I, I was always into music, film, things like that. Um, I had no idea what mastering was. I started after high school, I started, um, hanging out with musicians and, you know, diddling around with gear and, you know, a couple guys would start playing live shows. So I would go to the shows with them and try and, uh, you know, help them with sound. And then all of a sudden I started doing sound for bands and clubs. And uh, it kind of went from there. I started working in a recording studio, which I thought was cool for uh, a little while. And then all of a sudden I found a mastering studio in New Jersey out here that was a very small studio. Um, And I started working there and I became really interested in the final sound, like EQing the song to make it really kind of like move in the speakers. Yeah, that that that's EQing the sound to make sure it really moves, and of course, you know, movement is a lot. A lot of let's say movement in music. Uh, my intuition is that, that it comes from the dynamic uh, treatment. But this yeah. is the kind of the, the the dark art of mastering. Like a true mastering engineer has a, a very different perspective to a mix engineer. I get the impression um, that that's the case. So. Um, we've been, you know, I've been watching your mix of the masters and you talked about the, um, rapidly changing challenges of working in this kind of post digital age. And do you feel like you're kind of getting, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Your mixes are coming in kind of pseudo mastered. They're coming in really hot and really loud. Yes. Yes. So the new, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's the new trend that's been the last five years that mixers mix a song and then they pre-treat it, you know, for level to make it sound mastered. So when the artist listens to it, they can say, okay, that's an idea of what it should sound like. And then I get it and it's already loud enough, maybe too loud in a lot of cases. And they're so used to what the the references, the the pre-treated mix that it's very hard to move away from that and a lot of times it's like you know they just made it really loud it's a little distorted they're like don't worry about it the guy will do that and sometimes it's like i can't get it that loud without distorting there's a, there's so many complicated things that go into doing that 
which I don't understand why. It's like if you're going to mix something and then pre-treat it and give the client and everybody that pre-treated mix, that's the mix. There, the, nobody's hearing the actual mix. So how can you make comments to it? How can you, you know what I'm saying? Like if you've never heard the mix, then we're going with what you did in the pre-treating. And a lot of times that compresses things or limits things and puts, you know, puts things in a different dynamic, um, raises vocals, lowers vocals, makes drums hit harder, makes them hit less, you know, it changes everything. And uh, it's kind of confusing you know, when you get into like, okay, let me take the mix and try and redo that. And it sounds better than the, the pre-treated one. And you just have to, you have to get the artist or the producer to separate themselves from that pre-treated one and now listen to your master and say, okay, is that better? Is that what I want? Or am I just used to the other one? Right. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird place right now. That's interesting because I, I sent a record to listen mastering um, with a, a, a previous guest on this podcast, Ruben Cohen, and they said when you you know make a request, have you got space to fit this into your schedule and how much? Um, they immediately start saying, uh, "What's on your stereo bus? Can you take all of it off and give us two versions, one with what's all the stuff that's on your stereo bus, which I believe you were referring to as pre-treatment? There, it's like this kind of yes. fake master, yeah? yeah, and then send yeah. us that without. And for those for the members of the audience who are maybe not so um, you know, deep in the rabbit hole of audio and who might be a little bit lost with the things that we're saying. Um, I think it's fair to say that the pre-treatment that you're talking about there, Chris, the kind of the, the, the pseudo master that people put on their mixes is a little bit like trying to judge a photograph with a kind of orange filter over the top of it. So you, you're not really accurately commenting on the color and the dynamics. Exactly, exactly. The, you know, like I just don't understand logically, if you say this is the mix, why wouldn't you want the artist and the producer to hear the mix? Why do you, like everybody has this thing in their head that if they listen to the mix and it's not loud enough, like people are going to play the mix immediately against other songs. It has to be loud enough. And to me, that's just like, it, like, I, people tell me the answer to that, and it still doesn't make sense to me. Why are you just doing the mix then? What, like, what, you know, the, if the bus is part of it, then that's what it is. There is only that to go out, you know. But if you're so going to say, "Well, this is, this is the mix, and this is my fake mastering," why would you want to give an artist fake mastering? You know, what I'm saying everything that the everything that the mixers are saying, why they do this now is it doesn't make sense if you really sit down and analyze it. Like if right. you if you do a mix and you're like, this is the mix, it sounds amazing, then you give that to the artist and tell the artist, the mastering guy will raise the level. Don't worry about that. Listen to the mix. Right, so do you, this is a very, really specific technical question. Would you recommend that for, uh, for mix engineers, would you recommend that they bounce their mixes out at some kind of nominal level, like minus three dB, or is it not that specific? I'm the level thing is never going to that's never going to come to a final number or say like this is where your mix should be. The mix should sound the way you want it to sound, whether it's loud or low. Um, and you should believe or you should strive to say that what you've done in that mix is exactly what you want represented later on in the mastering, just maybe louder or lower. The whole level thing, too, is kind of like it's just taking over the industry in the most ridiculous way that louder is better in a playlist. Yeah. I actually, 
I actually was listening. To, I listen to New Music Friday every Saturday if I go for a walk or I'm driving around. And a song that I actually mastered, Artist Will Remain Anonymous, the mix came on and I had to jump for my volume control to turn it down because it was so loud that I was like, oh my God. And I just knew, like, I had no idea it was coming up in the playlist, but I knew that when I mastered it, that it was just, it was like hitting minus three luffs in the peaks. Right. And so and it's, were you saying that just, when you I, were listening to it, I apologize, were you saying that when you listened to it, it came on louder than you expected it to come on? Way louder. Like so much that I had to jump and turn it down. I was in my car driving and I just was like listening to this, the song before it and I was really into it. And I was like, this sounds good. And, you know, I'm driving, listening to these songs. And then this song that I did comes on. It's just like, ah, it's just, I mean, it was overtly loud. And that people always say, I don't want my record to be so low that someone has to reach for it and turn it up. Well, the adverse is that somebody has to reach for it and turn it down. That's exactly nobody's right. Just, nobody's just going to leave it that loud. If you're listening to something like five songs in a row and you're like, okay, this is loud and good. And then the next one comes on and it's louder. That's you know, like, what's what's the benefit for that? So well, For why... me, I automatically turned it down and said, that's too loud. So for the regular person listening, what would they say? Oh, this is so much better. It's it's mind-blowing how much better it is because it's so loud. You know, yeah. like, nobody well, thinks that way but, but mixers, mastering engineers, and producers. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. Why was it so loud that you were unhappy with it if it was your work? Had the client pushed you there? Or... The, client, the client pushed me. And it was just like, this is what it is. And that's the worst part about doing what I do is when, you know, someone comes to me and trusts me for my 40 years of mastering and then says, yeah, okay, just, just do what I tell you. I'm not really like, I mean, I do it because I do it, but I'm not a fan of working that way. You know, that's not what, what I do is about. And that's, you know, I don't feel like you know, after me doing what I do for so long, that's why people come to me is just to say, do whatever the hell I want, you know? Yeah, just, I... It's, it's not a, fun. That, that's, it's been a big theme of um, a few of these discussions recently that often good, let's say, people instructing creative work, artists commissioning, mixing, and mastering, things like this, or directors working with actors, anything where there's a transaction where someone wants a result from the other person, the most fluid relationships are the ones where the director, artist, or whoever is commissioning the work is kind of saying, I like what you do. So I'm just going to give you this project and let you do your thing with it. Is that what you were kind of describing there? You like people yes, to just, I, yeah. I feel like when I feel like I do my best work when people say, just do whatever you do, because obviously my focus is making your song sound amazing. Yeah. That's my focus. But if you're saying just make it this loud, then all the creative energy and all the creative thoughts are, are just erased to raise the level and smash it and do whatever. Yeah. Because you know? then it's not it's not it isn't really a creative request. You're making a just a specific technical request. And um if mastering engineers are going to participate in that in that transaction, if they're going to just say, yes, I'll make it as loud as you want, it's not going to be long before a machine learning algorithm can do that. And Absolutely. So Absolutely. You know, and then, you know, like this whole thing with AI now is AI, may, maybe I'll be, you know, ashes by that time, but AI is not human and it doesn't understand 
feeling the way we feel right now. Everything I do is based on feeling. You know, when I make it brighter, I base it on feeling. When I add bass, I base it on feeling. And I don't know if AI can do that right now or understand the difference in, you know, between songs, that, that, those decisions. So, I mean, at some point, maybe it will, but I hope not to be around at that point. At the moment, uh, I get the sense that people are trying to make broad, vague predictions in order to not look like they didn't see it coming in the way that people usually don't see um they don't see the real things that transform the world in for the better or for the worse people don't really notice it when it's arrived what i mean by that is when the iphone came out in 2007 uh, it was the top story on bbc technology news uh you know apple unveil iphone and it was cool because it was like it's an ipod that's a phone great no one reported it as top front page news. The thing has arrived that will transform the social landscape. And in a decade, you won't know which end is up. Donald Trump is going to be president. That's right. Donald Trump <laughs> is going to be president. Everyone's going to hate each other. You're going to be disagreeing on fundamental like things you assumed everyone under like understood and agreed on. No one was reporting that because no one knew that this society transforming device had just landed and so that's yeah. why my suspicion is a little bit like ai is probably not the harbinger of doom that people think it is because you usually just can't see it coming yeah i mean yeah i it's the whole magic of music is making you know like i i see people now talking about online um you know, AI lyrics, you know, you put in your mood chat GBT, you say, Hey, I broke up with my girlfriend and I feel like this, or, you know, my boyfriend is this, or my, you know, my kid, whatever, you know, my relationship is this. Um, and it gives you an idea of lyrics, but what is that? That's not mm. you. You mm. know what I'm saying? It's really not you. And that's the, that's the part about being an artist and, having the equipment to be an artist that's the difference i feel that's the way it is with studios now when i came up in the industry you had to go to a studio you had to work with an engineer who knew how to work the equipment you had to spend time there and your creative zone in the studio was limited because of the amount of hours that you could afford or or work there today home studios people go in home studios and they never leave they just wake up they brush their teeth and they sit in a studio all day and make music and then they go to bed and they wake up and do it again. So there's no, there's no like, I don't know, I, I guess they become non-human almost where they're just sitting making music all day and there's no barometer to say, this is shit, this is great, this is whatever. You're just, you're just in a zone making it. It's like a factory production now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In my, in my early 20s, and I'm sorry to cut you off, Chris, but in my early 20s when I was trying to learn to mix, I was like, how are there engineers out there who were doing so much better than I am by the time they were 25? And then I was like, of course, they all were doing apprenticeships. Yeah, you learned in a studio, too, from other people. I know, I know mixers and mastering engineers who have never worked a day in a studio. That's they insane. just did it on their own in their bedroom. And I guess they are mixers and masters, but there's something about being an apprentice and learning and being an assistant and learning the, the, you know, the, the, the world of making music. You're, there's other people that come into your, into your life and affect you and teach you things. And just watching YouTube videos and sitting at home, I don't feel, I feel like you're disconnected from a lot of the, you know, the, the 
going back and forth in a studio situation or yeah. learning from someone else side by side. You can watch a video, but that video never changes. The video is the same thing every time you watch it. When you work with somebody and assist somebody, every day it's something different. There's nothing there's nothing repeated. Uh, you, know, yeah. you may do some, do some of the steps the same, but the emotions, the, everything else is different every day because you're in, a, you're in a new day. But this is it. It's like, you know, if I'm just watching Mix of the Masters, which is great, and as we opened by saying, it is a great resource for the, um, for the cost, uh, but it does not know what the gaps in my knowledge are specifically. It can't go, oh, you keep doing this stupid thing. Just d do it that way. And that's the benefit of presumably the kind of apprenticeship that you served. Yeah. And as time goes by too, you know, formats change, things change. Everything, when I started out in the business, it was, I was cutting discs and that was it. And then it changed to CD and then it changed to streaming and different things. And I adapted my workflow and my process to each change and through the changes. And I just feel like for the, for the newer generation trying to get into this, they're, they live in a world where their studio is what they built on their own. There's nobody there. To, there's no feedback for anybody to say, uh, I would move your speakers closer and, you know, closer together and closer to you or further away and put some bass diffusers. There's nobody there to do that. They're, everybody's guessing at home and watching YouTube videos or mix with the masters or whatever, or having a guess to say like, oh, this is how I'm going to change. This is what I'm going to do when they, if they had somebody like, you know, a mentor or a real engineer come to their place and say, okay, this is good, but here's, here, here's where your expectations end. Uh, you know, this is what you're limited to in this home studio. That is really interesting because the, um, false prophecy of the digital age was something like it will connect everyone and bring everyone together because look at what we're doing now. You're in New Jersey, here I am in Manchester and yet we're having this conversation, but uh, it's it's more than people like to think. It's more like screaming into a void because, you know, you cannot feel the temperature in this room. You cannot see the shocking acoustic treatment, bet, which, as you can see, we barely have. There's like a whole uncovered window there, you know. Uh, I mean, you can vaguely see what's behind me. But you can't hear my speakers and you can't say, oh, there's this obvious thing you're doing wrong. And that those those moments of interaction that can like change the trajectory of people's lives, a lot of them have been kind of diffused into the digital world. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it is. You know, and I feel like that part of my success was my experiences over the years of working in multiple rooms in different locations and different people, different consoles, different gear. It's just, it's, you know, I think it's part of, you know, my story of, yeah. you know, why I'm here is that I've gone through all this for a, a new kid doing this to work, you know, in your bedroom or your living room with the same speakers or the same stuff, same room, same everything for a long time. Or never experiencing anything else. How do you how do you be creative in that way? You mm -hmm. know, like I I've gone to studios where I'm like, oh my god, this studio sounds amazing. I have to, you know, it makes me want to do something for my studio. You know, and the culmination of all my work has led to this studio and the way it sounds here and the gear that I have and and all that. It's you know, it's decades of being in other places that brought me here and to have the equipment that I have here. Right. That's interesting. So I want to softball you a question that um, I have been 
really dying to ask someone with your level of expertise in this particular field mastering for a long time because there was a friend of mine uh, who was working in the, the manner that you described you know he's making his record at home his in, in you know in my in my limited opinion his songs are really really good but you know he wants to do all the production himself okay that's fine uh, I know a good guy who I've referred him to to do the mixing but this mix engineer is working you know in a as you said home studio it's got some good diffusion panels that he's built himself and his environment is is satisfactory enough for him to make a good mix but nevertheless um i said to my friend the artist i said just apportion some budget for a pro mastering engineer to get that done at the end and he said to me, I think I'm just going to... This guy who has a home studio who's mixing it for me, he says he can master it as well, and it's cheaper than a pro mastering engineer. Does it really make that much of a difference? Like, what's the added benefit of a pro mastering engineer? So a mastering engineer is a third person's view of what they think your music should sound like creatively. Like, maybe it needs to be brighter. Maybe it needs this. It needs these things. But it's a third person's view. If you're going to mix it, and master it, you're really just mixing it and then turning it up. You're not going to, I I find very rare, I mean, I know some mixers who say, hey, I did some stuff and they put five plugins on the process to master it. And I'm like, you're still mixing there. You know what I'm saying? You haven't separated yourself from the mix and you can't separate yourself from the mix. You're the mixer. So to have someone master it would be someone else to come in and say, hey, this is the way it sounds in my studio. I trust my studio. I'm experienced. This is the way I think the song should sound. And I think it'll sound best on multiple systems in this format. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. You have to separate yourself to be honest with what you've done. And you should want to let get some feedback from somebody else. A lot of, new, of the new mixers don't want feedback. They say, well, I played your song against you know, this this group and it sounds the same and that's the direction that we're going in. It's like, okay, but what about like other systems or other places? You know, like what what's the feedback from other people? Is it bright? Is it dull? Is it too, are the vocals too low? Is the hi-hat too loud? Things like that, I think, I mean, critique is what you want in your work everybody everybody really thinks they want that but they don't actually want to hear anybody say oh you know i have a son who is in the music business and i master his stuff and whenever i give him feedback he doesn't want to hear it he literally just wants me to say what a great song this is going to kill like that's not feedback that's ass kissing yeah feedback is someone saying like hey man the you're hot, you know, your, your top end's completely shrill and distorting. Why don't we just knock it down a couple dB and then let me approach it and try and, and do something. And, you know, people don't really, I think the new generation with the keyboard and the comments, I, I think people are very critical of other people's work, but not, they, they can't accept criticism to their own work. And mastering is not necessarily criticism. It's a critique to make the song sound better. It's my, it's my honest opinion to what I think could make the song sound better. I work with a lot of people who I don't really do a lot of stuff to their master. You know, there are some mixers that I don't have to do a lot to because it's perfect. Or I understand who who they've been working with producer-wise, artist-wise, and I know that when the mix comes in, it's done. Like, there is not a lot of room for doing something else, and I understand that. Um, 
with a lot of home studio work. I, you know, people think it sounds great at home, but I get it here and it sounds like it's horrible because their room is not tuned right. It's not set up right. There's a million things. So I try and not just, I don't just go in and step on it and say, Hey, this is, this is what I'm doing and it's best for you. I kind of give them some feedback and say, Hey, I'm going to go in this direction because I think this is going to help your record a lot and feel, feel free to make a change. If you think, uh, you know, I went too heavy handed in one way, or you think it's better if you make the change than I make the change here. It's it's interesting that, um, the difference between it's, there is an ephemeral quality to what we're trying to describe here with mastering, which is to say that someone wants the answer, what does the mastering engineer actually do? And the answer will come back as a series of uh, routines that you perform on a desk or in a series of plugins. The mastering engineer does this. And I have heard that the beginning of the explanation you gave for about a decade now, it's like the mastering engineer, part of their primary purpose is not being the mix engineer and having a different perspective. And is 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 part of the reason for that that the mix engineer is thinking about how the kick drum interacts with the bass and then what to give priority in the kind of 500 hertz to 2k region you know what gets priority around the vocal that's a completely different set of operations and um calculations than what the mastering engineer is doing which is i'm taking this stereo mix and trying to figure out how it will have a relationship with people who are listening in a car or people who are listening on a phone exactly right Exactly. In the beginning of mastering, mastering was originally tape to disc transfer. So it was take what was on tape, put it on disc, and make sure that the sounds stayed linear or the same to what the mixer did. There wasn't a lot of creative process going into that. Then over time, it was like, okay, hey, let me put a little top end on your record and it'll sound a little better on the disc or add some, I have some room to add bottom or fix this you know, gap in your frequency range. And that became the process. When vinyls started falling out to CD, then mastering engineers said, I'm going to build the best sounding studio that I can because now with CD, I have a little more freedom as far as EQing and things like that because it's not physical space on a disc, it's digital space, which you can uh, you can go through a whole frequency range in digital space. So then it became like, okay, I'm going to tweak your music to sound better on all formats and my room, I trust it because I put so much time and energy into this room to make it sound good and make it sound good with all genres of music, all formats and things like that. And it gave artists a chance or producers and mixers a chance to say like, okay, let's see what, you know, we didn't get right. Maybe we can go back and fix it in the mix or we can let the mastering engineer do it. And that's kind of where mastering is now is like fixing stuff. But then over time, back in the disc days, again, it was usually one mixer doing the entire record. So your EQ was not crazy. It wasn't all over the place. Maybe in the early 2000s, Artists started working with a producer for one song and a, and a mix engineer, and another producer for another song and a mix engineer. You really saw that so, with hip hop, right? Like a lot, basically a compilation album. Hip hop and and pop. Like there was like I remember like one of the earlier Rihanna records that I worked on. It was thirteen songs, and it was basically like it was probably seven or eight mixers and twelve or thirteen different producers. So each record sounded completely different. It's like, how do I put that all together and balance it out so that it plays like an album? 
So right. that became the the new style of mastering. It was like kind of balancing everybody's stuff out. Even just recently, you know, like the last Dua Lipa album, there were like four or five mixers, um, different producers, Little Nas X, the same thing. So everybody, each producer and mixer in their mind says, my song sounds the best, just put it on there that way. But it would be a roller coaster of, of volume and sound and, and different things. So I'm there to kind of put it all together and make each person sound as best as I can make them sound together so that the, the album has some kind of like flow or balance to it. Okay. Yeah. Even though the new norm now is a lot of artists say, I don't care about mastering. This song can be really loud. This song can be really low. This song can be whatever. And it's like, okay, that's great. But if you actually sit as a, a fan and listen to your whole album, it's horrible. You know, right. it just doesn't sound right. So speaking, um, let me see. Um, I'm going to get Chris to edit this pause out because I really need to think about this question. Um, you're, you're really hitting me with good stuff. Like this is this is you, we've got right into it. we got into the fucking pit. And <laughs> <laughs> this is what we do. Having a guess, um, the epigram that may define the internet era is a little knowledge is a dangerous thing because what you have is you know an army of non-experts assuming the importance of a certain detail and to break that down into something that doesn't sound quite so pretentious and wordy what i mean is people are always asking me because they think i'm in the music industry we just make music for adverts you're in the music industry they always say oh what 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 kind of what what luffs should the mix be when i finished it should it be like at minus 12 minus 10 luffs and i'm like i don't know and i don't think you do either but like chris what what do you make of this Luffs argument and discussion? The Luffs thing is it, right now it's just the worst thing that could happen to um, to the music business because... Now we thought it was I, bad with the over-limiting in the original Loudness War. Exactly. But now this thing about Luffs is like this is where it should be for the best streaming playback and all this stuff. Most of the streaming services are vague about what they really want because they don't want to giveaway you know they don't want you to see behind the veil of what their process is or whatever so it's just one of those things where like honestly like if someone sends me a mix i would love to see it like in the minus 14 minus 10 area and then i can raise it up to minus seven or minus six or whatever um that's vaguely the gist of it but there's other reasons for that is that you're not smashing everything like we make jokes about files like files normally have like space and they go up and down and they're like these they're like these fuzzy long lines or whatever but when it comes in it's just like a like a rectangle then where's the dynamics where's you're the talking about the image of the waveform the image of the waveform and when we see those we're generally kind of like as a master engineer you're generally like okay nobody cares you know, the whole thing to me is movement and space and level change. Mm -hmm. You know, like when something goes down to silence, then it comes back in like loud. You know, like, you know, like think about like the Whitney Houston song, I Will Always Love You. You know, she sings that line and then it basically goes silent. And then it's like, dun, dun, dun. And, uh, you know, that part. It's like if that was the same level, you'd just be like, it would be like, don't, don't, and, uh, you know, like it would yeah. just not have the emotion that it has. And that's what people don't understand is there's so much emotion tied to dynamics and space and vibe and things like that, that that's what makes songs hits to me. That's when you get the, when you get the goosebumps from the sound and the mix, 
that's where the magic is. You can just put a song out. There are plenty of like, you know, techno songs and dance songs where it's like dun 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 dun, dun and that's it. And and there's a space for that. I'm not saying that's bad, but there's a space for that. But I feel for like most music where there's an artist singing and someone's playing, I feel like that's the ma- that's the magic that you want to capture and re- and reproduce for the for the record is that magic of space and movement. Yeah, some like, I I don't remember where I read this, but it always stuck with me that the essence of good music composition, and I don't mean composition like Beethoven, but creation of any music is all in contrast, either dynamic contrast, you know, uh, going from loud to quiet to loud to quiet, or, you know, the the contrast between chords in, you know, in in jazz harmony, things like this. It's all about going from one thing to another thing in a way that's surprising and satisfying. And it sounds like you were saying there, Chris, that when you get this super limited tracks where everything's just hit, not, not only hitting zero dB, but obviously there's there are transients that, uh, if there was no threshold, would be all the way up here that are just being completely flattened. So you're not getting any of that contrast. It's one thick block. It felt like there was kind of a trend for that in... Uh, rock music in the early 2000s like I listened to some track records by Feeder and things like that it just feels like it's the same all the way through you know yeah yeah it's funny like way back years ago I was working with The Roots on the Phrenology album and it was like you know Pro Tools was like expanding to you could do a hundred and something tracks and one song came in and I was I think it was Quest Love was in and I was playing the Pro Tools session back and I was like, what are all these tracks? Like I was just cueing some of the tracks, soloing them to hear what there was. And there was somewhere it was just like, dink, like little noises just going on. I was like, they're so low. And, and, you know, he said something like it's vibe, you know, like everything does, all the faders don't need to be up all at the same level and everything in your face it's little movements and things like that that make the songs groove and i was like uh, you know i got it totally but it was just interesting to see like all a hundred and something tracks playing at the same time when i came out of you know the 24 track world and i was out of recording when 48 tracks you know when linking two machines together was and even then i was like 48 tracks what are you going to do with all that you know, <laughs> and yeah. now, you know, 48 tracks is nothing to anybody. No, I mean, I saw the, the on Instagram the other day, the um, uh, land, I would say landmark producer, like kind of uh, unknown by the by the main mainstream, but he's a musician's producer, Mike Dean. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he said uh, on Instagram, he was like, d- d- he was showing a Pro Tools window, he was mixing something for someone, and there was like four layers of the same sound. And he was like, d- stop just layering things. All the best records ever were made with 24 tracks. Make each sound bigger and better. Individual sounds, make them bigger and better. Don't just stack layers on layers. Yeah, it's the truth. Because, you know, like, you, I mean, obviously, if you go back to like the Beatles or any early, you know, 60s rock or soul or or anything, you know, like early jazz stuff was like, you know, a stereo mic in a room and you captured the moment. It was about the feeling and the and what was going on. It was about the performance. And today it's just like guys show me Pro Tools sessions and it's just like there's so much stuff and it's the same thing over and over and they're like well this I ran through this and this I ran through that and this I I spaced this and I delayed that and I did all this and it's like why 
Like yeah. what, what was the, you know, like just record something that sounds really good. Use a mic. Nobody uses a mic anymore. It's really true. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think about that from time to time. Tracking has just gone the way of the dinosaur as a, as a means to make a, a record. Yeah. Everybody's just concerned with like one good mic for vocals. You know, like I, I came up in the time where guys were like, this is great for, you know, a snare drum and guys would s spend a day setting up a kick drum set, right. you know, like yeah. literally miking kick drums with like four or five mics and, you know, doing all these things, padding and this stuff. And it's just crazy, you know, or, or miking snares or overheads, yep. you know, using $10,000 stereo microphones for doing overhead drums. And you're like, okay. Like the drums are going to sound good. They're going to sound representative of what it was like being in the room while the guy was playing, not just like some like dunk, 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 you know, like <clears throat> drum machine panned out with, a, you know, some processing on it or something. Yeah, the kind of the, the, the digital equivalent of get, getting all the sounds right on the way in, it feels like that's that's become... So you just described the process where you would be exhaustive in mic placement and mic decision and you know placing your instrumentalists in the room and you you would you would spend a lot of time with that at the front end of a tracking session making the record there are in the the defiant ones the netflix documentary there are these um you know legendary accounts of weeks and weeks of jimmy iovine with bruce springsteen just trying to get the snare sound right for born to run yeah. and of course yeah. time well spent what a great record in the end but what i'm saying is the modern equivalent of that feels like it's moved to choosing the right samples oh you know? absolutely i mean even my son and, and his friends who are all in the business they like they're constantly looking for samples they're never interested in like miking and making a sample you know, that's like right. that's that's too hard. It's, you know, like nobody plays drums anymore. You know, like there's a few drummers and they're very busy because nobody plays drums anymore. Yeah. Um, guitars, like I was in a studio in China a couple of years ago. It was a new studio and they had two of every amp you've ever wanted. Like it was a room just stacked with amps and two of each. And I was like, wow. And they were like, yeah, this is, so, you know, they were excited about it. But I was like, wow, you could actually go in and play an orange amp or an Ampeg, or you could play a Marshall stack, or you could play a Fender Twin or something like that. And they had it there and you could sit in the room and experience the sound hitting you as opposed to like, you know, I mean, I've, I think Amp Form is one of the greatest creations in plugins because you can just literally click through a million amps in one thing but you're not experiencing it the same way as plugging in and turning the knobs and getting the vibe and being like that's the sound i want you know as well as the the, the limiting factor of how much an amplifier cost meant that people would have to commit to a sound that became their signature you know if you can only afford an ac 130 well that's your sound the ac 130 now you can have a different amp you know amp uh preset on every channel on every track now obviously i'm going to be exposing us to uh, potentially being criticized as Luddites. Like, yeah, that's just the way things are going, man. It's like the new, th it's, it's the way it is. But well, uh, I think people are so keen to be the first, what, the, f the what, the, 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 people are so keen to be the early adopters of a new technology that they're perfectly willing to completely sacrifice everything that was good about the previous era. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, like I said, I, I, pretensed my statement by saying I love amp form. I think yes. it's great. And I think it gives the ability for musicians to make decisions 
like decisions that they might not be able to make or get sounds that they wouldn't be able to make having only owning one amp. But, you know, for me back in the day, it was you'd go to a studio and they would have multiple amps or somebody would be like, hey, man, I can get you something that'll sound great. Or, you mm. know, somebody has some hybrid rigged, super crazy amp and that helps you develop your sound. But today I feel like I feel like there's a lot of people who really aren't musicians making music where like they are just using so much sound and so many things to make music and they have blueprints of how to set up music that their creativity is limited to is very limited because of the amount of options if you understand that where before a musician had a certain amount of gear and he created the options with that amount of gear Mm. And I'm saying it's almost the adverse of like, if you have a million things to choose from and you get all these sounds and just having one thing to get this pure sound and maybe change it up, I just feel like you're more creative in that way. Like when I came up, I had to be as creative as I could with the limited amount of gear that I had. And I feel like today, so many people are just like, they lose fact of how to be creative because they have all this stuff and they just fill avoid with stuff instead of saying like hey man i really this is this is the sound that i'm going for and this is the gear that i'm going to use i find myself doing that sometimes with with limiters and things because there's i can literally click through 10 limiters for each record and say like okay that one needs this that one needs this where back in the day i had one eq and one limiter and i did everything through i did everybody's record through those and i had to be creative in the sense of like speeding the limiter up or slowing it down or trying this or trying that and it made me a little more aware of what i was doing as opposed to just like okay that's good click that's good click this before i spent more time really you know breaking down the equipment that i had and making it work yeah well i mean there is also this there's also this idea that the more things change the more they stay the same and i think um I think it's possible for people to get lost in a sea of, um, you know, endless choice. Um, but that's kind of what I'm. That that was kind yeah. of the gist of, you know. But I think the, the it's still I, my suspicion is it's still the case that now the, the the success is born out of people who impose limitations on themselves. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, here at here at Gas Music, where uh, as I said before, a production studio that basically makes music for advertisers. So people say we want something like this and we make it. Okay. So, I couldn't mix and we couldn't really mix very well for a long time. And then one of my co-producers here, Aaron, he started watching the mix of the masters. And again, it's, 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 the, it's the process that we were talking about before where it's kind of happening in a vacuum and you're just taking it in unidirectionally, not doing an apprenticeship. But um, one of the things that Aaron started doing was imposing like a strict uh, what template on his sessions. He was like, this is my mix bus and I've dialed in, and he got this from Andrew Sheps largely. I've dialed in, you know, I, I have a um, channel strip and that's my mix bus. You know, there's a, a pull tech, do it, you're doing a bit of a smiley face and that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. Sure approximate pulls out doing a bit of a smiley face and then a kind of left right compression and then there's this and then there's that but that's the color of his template that 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 sound is on top of everything and once that was in place that disciplined kind of limitation things started getting better because it's like you've committed to these choices and now you have to work the music into those choices is that something that you would advocate in this sea of endless possibility impose some discipline so great question. And here's something that like when I did, I did a mix with the masters um, seminar in Paris and 
everybody there was kind of horrified, not shocked, horrified that I basically used like one EQ and varied between, generally my work is between two limiters. Maybe there's a third or a fourth that come in every now and then for music that I can't get to sound right with the other limiters. And they were like, that's it? And I was like, they're like, you're a purist. And I was like, no, like... I feel like if I just work in these parameters, I push myself to get the sound with those. And only when I can't is when I step out of those, that, that channel strip. And these guys were like, you know, some guys were talking about, oh, I use this limiter for the bass, and then I use this, I split it, and I use this limiter for the top end, and I use this EQ, and this, and that, and this. And, and I'm like, that's your channel strip? Like, there's so many things in there. <laughs> yeah. And instead of being like, make a pure, like, this is my EQ, this is my limiter, this is whatever, you know, just use a couple things. And then if it doesn't work, then swap them out. But these guys were using everything all the time. And I was like, it's just like, you kind of you're you're not allowing yourself to push yourself. You're just you're you're you have everything in there, and you're like click 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 click, and you're. I think you lose the direction of the music by just saying like, oh, I have nine things, and I'll put all nine things in. You know, like, you know, that'll fix it. And all nine things were recommended on you know some YouTube guy's channel or yeah, of course, or whatever. Of course. Because you know? look, the YouTube rec the YouTube uh, lectures that are by people who haven't mixed or mastered or produced a you know a record that people actually listen to, you got to take them with a huge pinch of salt because the incentive there is to drive views so that you can accrue revenue from the YouTube views. They are yeah. not necessarily pro mix engineers. Um, with the people who were saying you're a purist, I'd never advocate arrogance, but of course you might <laughs> be tempted to point out it's like, well, you're the ones attending the seminar and I'm the one teaching it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, that totally. Um, it was funny when I left the seminar. I found myself going back to some analog gear and and uh, reapproaching my work. Like it just their questions. You know, twenty people in the class and twenty people had twenty different lanes of the way they work or workflow or whatever. And it kind of made me think to myself, like, should I change my workflow? Should I should I try this? And I've opened myself up to you know, trying new things now. And, you know, I've kind of expanded some of my gear here and I've tried, I've tried some new things. So it did work a little bit, but at the same time, I still have my template that I use mm -hmm. automatically because that's where I start. You need to start somewhere. You can't just be randomly. I feel, I mean, I feel for me, I can't just be randomly throwing pieces in and, you know, well, like no, when I do an album, when I do an album, I try and keep it glued together, you yes. know, instead of just randomly throwing things in. Yeah, that, of course. Yeah, that's the that's the facility of the discipline of the of the decisions, right? It's like it's it's t decisions are everything. It's like if you have endless endless choice, but you never make any decisions, then well, that's what leads to actually having no outcome because it, you know an outcome is dependent on a decision. Not to get too like sort of existential about it, but um, I wanted to ask because uh, I. I yeah, it occurred to me when you were talking about the, what you were showing the people at the seminar uh, that you've only mentioned limiters. Uh, why you may have addressed this in mix of the masters, and I've just not seen it yet. But why do you not use, you know, compression with different ratios and you know traditional compression? Why do you not use that kind of thing? And why do you mostly use limiters? Um, I feel like limiters. Limiter is to me is basically a softer or faster compressor. Um, you know, it just it works a little different. Um, Every now and then I'll use compression, but I'm not a fan of, like, I don't know. I'm, I just, I've found that I, 
the subtleties of limiters work better for me than hard compression. But every now and then I get some record that's so just like unglued. It's so random. It's so home studio demo kind of thing that I will put it through a compressor to kind of give it that, you know, kind of like put it in the same place, you know, like things are just all over the room, you know, sounds are just popping in. I feel like, okay, let me tame it down a little. Let me run it through some analog stuff to kind of like fill in some gaps right, or whatever. And then I'll use that. I'm just, um, I mean, way back in the day, I used to use a, a compressor very lightly for disc cutting. Um, but I just felt like for me now, limiting is kind of whatever. I may, be, I, I may or may not be working on some form of light compression thing coming up, but we'll see. Well, it's, it's, but it's, <laughs> I, I'm in a testing stage. I'm going to be in a testing stage of something else very soon. I look forward so. to seeing how it, how it comes out. But um, <laughs> what, you, what you described there seems is the opposite of what my intuition uh, suggests, which is that you, you you um regarded limiters as uh, softer more transparent than compression but which is weird because i thought the opposite and i'm not a pro mastering engineer so i'm in your care here but i thought of i thought of limiting as effectively very very hard compression like incredibly high ratio and incredibly fast response time but it sounds like i'm mistaken about that What's no i mean it, I, I don't, it's hard for me to explain the the like the compression part it can be used soft in some senses, but for the most part, I feel like it's just too hard for like the, it, it slows down the movement too much where right. a limiter kind of just tops the peaks and doesn't really like squeeze it together as much. Uh, I get it. Kind of it gives a very soft, transparent haircut to the transients. Yes. Where the other one kind of just like does this, you know? Yeah. Compression. It starts, it starts obviously shaping it and you're shaping transients and you're giving the dynamics a completely different temporal landscape. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, you know, I had somebody here the other day and, uh, he was amazed by how much I get into the limiter settings and really sweep them and turn them to see what happens. And I'm like, that's what the knobs are for. You know, right. to literally, like presets are great presets. I once in a while I'll ch like click on a preset just to see like okay what does that do. But for the most part, I know like when I'm listening to this song, I know you know I'll click on the the algorithm template and then I'll you know kind of go in and and you know dial the release and the attack and the this and the that and you know the the just all I'll just turn every knob until I feel like okay that's moved into the right place that's moved you know like it's almost like you know I mean it's photoshop now I you know like I laugh at myself when I'm doing photoshop because I literally click on every single button you know and I'm like that's kind of what I do in mastering anyway you know I'm like oh it's contrast oh this oh black you know like you know just like different things and it's like you have to turn the knob to see what it does that's interesting because you described limiters there as the opposite of what I would have previously understood them to be, which is like a one setting thing. But there, you are actually dialing all these well, parameters. So the, pre the presets are like click and then it gives you a couple little options. But I use them in manual all the time and kind of sweep through and see, you know, yep. what it'll do. A lot of times like my recalls, like you would think a lot of times you just put on the limiter and it's kind of like, okay, adjust the level and maybe this, a couple little things. But my limiters, like I, I might use the same limiter for 13 songs, but the settings will be completely different across the board. Well, that's, that's interesting actually, because we moved to the Ozone uh, 10 uh, limiters because 
um, uh, we found that the, we were previously using the Waves L series, you know, uh, usually L2, no one really uses L1 here, uh, sometimes L3. But for, we felt like they were really just, they, they are very easy to overcook what you're doing. Like it becomes quite bright and quite, oh, yeah. but that maybe that was just because we weren't adjusting the parameters. No, I mean, they, they. that's the natural, you know, I mean, I find a lot of times limiters make everything a little bit brighter. So I'm usually readjusting the top end. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's just different limiters out there. The Ozone 10 is, I use Ozone all the time. I mean, it's one of my, it's pretty much my, it's, you know, the Pro L the Pro L2 or Ozone are pretty much my two uh, limiters, the maximizers. Um, I feel that with the um, with the Ozone, there's a lot of there's a lot of shaping ability in there, and not a lot of knobs to turn to do it. You know, like there's you know the 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 slide, the the character slide does a lot it keeps it keeps you from, maybe there's not all the little things in the l3 in the l2 that you can shape but in the character slide i hear so many i just i when i slide it i hear when it's perfect like it's just right. like okay slide that dink okay let me change this you know a couple little things but for the most part it works it, it's really good i okay. i hear it. that's the thing is when people talk about like gear and stuff like that like i always tell people like it's not what i say it's what you hear Yes. If you can't use the tool that I recommend, you need to find a tool that you understand. And that happened to me very early on with like limiters and things like that. I was using a Massenberg limiter and a compressor. I was using all this gear that like I didn't really understand. And I find I kept saying like, let me move away from that and find something that I actually hear and can understand. And you know, that's how I put together my first room is like, okay, I get this piece of gear, I get this, I hear this, this works for me, it does what I want it to do. So that's what I put together. And I feel like the the, the newer generation is so swayed by like so many opinions of like, this is good, this is good, use this, you got to be crazy not to use this, you know, like, it's just like, if it doesn't work for you, why are you using it? Why'd you buy it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that, go on. It has to work for you. Yeah. It ha- absolutely has to work for you. If you can be like creative with it, then it's working. <clears throat> if you can't be creative with it, it's it's useless. Yeah. So someone who is is interested in acquiring the Pro L, uh, for example, which I think is, again, I'm trying not to do what you just dis- fall into the pitfall you just described and accidentally steer a bunch of viewers into the uh, in the wrong direction or into thinking in the wrong way. But I, my impression is the Pro L is basically has basically become the favorite, like the number one industry standard limiter and i get the sense that uh, some of that at least is because of its brilliant brilliant graphic interface like it, it the way it looks is perhaps yeah. as important as the way it behaves no that's totally true i mean the more bells and whistles on the plug and i feel today you know the more people are like oh like the god particle it's just absolutely lovely to look at you know like you look at the thing going i i mean i the first time i saw it i was like this is amazing i didn't even hear it but just you know the colors and the lights and it looks like you know the universe in a black hole and you're like man this is like this is really cool but did it work for me it didn't really work for me you know like it could work in mastering but it just didn't you know i just didn't feel like it was something I would add to my gear. No disrespect to Jason. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's a great plug-in. It's like it's beautiful. You know. 
Yeah, of course. And it, wor- and it works for a lot of people. It's just, you know, I mean, I'm on a PC. It doesn't really work great right on a PC. Um, yeah, sometimes it is that simple. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the cases with with gear today. Like, if you know, if it doesn't work in your workstation, then it's useless, no matter how many people rave about it. Yeah, but that shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be something where you're like, oh man, I feel like I feel like my career would be better if I could use the God particle. You know, it's just like one of those things. Like, if you can't use it, you find something else. You find something that can almost recreate that, or you try to. So it's uh, we're coming up on uh, you know almost time to wrap up, but there's the, the one of the big areas I wanted to touch on before we um, conclude is um, the importance and the robustness of of room engineering for mastering uh, because. You know, I'm looking at your room there and it looks like you've got this typically kind of like two, three foot deep kind of treatment on all the walls. And I don't it's know. It's a if couple it's, feet deep. Is it actually that extensive? Yeah. So you, what, you, what you're uh, suggesting is if you want to start up a mastering room, it's like you're going to have to have a room that you can rent for which you can budget for some of the space being taken out because you're going to lose a lot of it. I mean, if you want to build a serious mastering studio, I highly recommend having a room built that you're not second guessing, like, is my base right? Is my top end right? Is my imaging right? You want to get someone in there to build you a studio that the music, you know, comes at you, hits the back wall and dissipates into the back wall. It's not bouncing around and and going crazy. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the last 20 something years building studios and with right now our rooms are northward acoustic rooms thomas built these rooms um ted uh, myself and joe laporta went to europe a couple years ago to go around and see most of his rooms that he had built there and and vibed in them we you know the people who own the studios gave us you know a couple hours to listen to our own music in the studios and uh that's how we that's how we came up with you know thomas i mean he he's one of the top designers, if not the biggest right now, I think. Um, and we made the investment with him to build a real studio. And it works for all of us here because we don't have to, you know, there's no guessing. All our rooms are like, they're, they sound amazing. We treated everything the right way. He, d- he did the entire process. We put in ATCs. Um, nice. You know, yeah, we he, he, the place is beautiful, um, but the best part about it is that there's no guessing. Like it's, it is what it is. I fully trust the sound that comes out of here to play back great everywhere else. And I mean, between all of us here, we get great feedback from all of our clients. You know? But I imagine that a room like that is not is not cheap to set up. No, it's not cheap. But that's you know. I mean, I started, if you saw the first room I worked in, you would laugh because it was, you know, it was kind of a makeshift room with some Yuri 813 speakers hanging from the ceiling. And, you know, it was what it was, but I made it, I made it mine. And over, you know, the 40 years that I've been doing this, I've tried to make my room better and hire better people and use better speakers and use the best stuff that I can to get the best sounding room. Um, It takes time and it takes a lot of money. There's definitely no question about that. But, you know, if you don't have the money, you can come up with other solutions by hiring the right people and getting the right materials. It's not something that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like 
I mean, I feel like this is an addiction having the best sounding room, but at the same time, like once you get into a room like this, you're like, okay, now I can just work. I don't have to think. I'm not second guessing myself. I'm not worried about whatever, you know, like I feel like I can trust this room day in, day out and never question it. And that was actually, you know, going back to something you said before about home studios is during COVID, I worked the entire time. I spent no time baking sourdough bread, Zoom callings with my aunt and uncles, or whatever. I came to the studio every day. So did everybody else here, just the engineers. Myself, Joe Laporta, Greg Calby, Randy Merrill. We came in every day. We avoided each other. But we were so busy because everybody else had converted to home studios. You know, they bought a whole bunch of gear. They built a studio. And they were like, I think it sounds good. Tell me what you think. So mastering became so important during that period that we had, you know, we were really busy because we had great rooms and people trusted our systems to say, all right, do whatever you got to do. Just make my stuff sound good because I can't get to a studio. And all the studios, you know, in my city are closed. So, or the studio that I work in is closed. So. Well, that's a good answer to the question that we kind of started off with, which is, you know, is a pro mastering engineer really needed? And the answer is, well, in, in, in times of crisis, it's the only thing that didn't move. So that tells you something about its necessity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 for me, like, I think mastering is very important because it's another person's opinion on some work that, you know, you may not be sure of, it, you know, like you can be sure, but I, I still think like, I think criticism is one of the greatest tools out there because you everybody really wants to know that their stuff sounds good, and you can't know that by not asking anybody. You can't just say it, it sounds great and that's it. You know, whatever that you know, like you really, it's it's great to bounce stuff off of other people in a room that you know is like sounds right. So. So, you know, so, pe people come here when I have an attended session, people come here and I put the music up and a lot of times they're like, oh, my God, this is like, wow, I can't believe that. Like, this is what's coming out of there. Or they're like, hey, can you fix that? Oh, wow. So much low end. I didn't hear that because they were mixing on headphones, you know, and I have giant speakers here that you know, can reproduce low end and, you know, okay, maybe the world is just listening on headphones now, but when you go out and you hear it on a system, you want it to sound really good because it's on a system and it's in a room and a lot of people are hearing it at once. You don't know what people are listening to on their headphones, but when you're in a room and they're playing your song, you want it to sound good. Yeah, of course. And it's not, it's not always a case that, well, the speakers that people are listening to can't reproduce 60 hertz so therefore we don't need that frequency range anymore it doesn't appear that doesn't sound right to me it's more like well i mean everything above that octave is balanced against it so it you know it, it affects the whole mix and the whole master even if people can't hear it it still has to be there no it has to be there yeah there's you know it's funny this i was just demoing this new plug in eq and the guy had the graph and he showed me that when i boosted 8k on a wide shelf it went all the way down to 10 hertz in some form. And I was like, man, that's what people don't understand. Wow. You know, like that, like when I, sometimes when I work on vocals, trying to clear up vocals, it's the frequency is not in the vocal range. It's somewhere else in the spectrum where by moving something, it makes the vocal sound better yeah. or the drums sound better, things like that. People don't understand what, what mastering is in some sense of like EQ manipulation. It's not always where you think it is. It's in other places, right? In this, in the, it's similar to the principle that you know, if you want an audio signal to become to to appear, not to become, but to appear brighter, 
Well, if you high pass the whole thing and you get rid of that low end, it'll appear brighter as soon as you've high passed all the way up to like 250, 300 hertz. Suddenly, without that low end there, it just sounds really bright and you've not added anything. It's that kind of manipulation of something else to influence the thing you're trying to manipulate, right? Exactly, exactly. Cool. So, uh, Chris uh, Geringer, it's been a great discussion. It's been really good to talk to you. And, and hopefully I'll be able to find some time when I fly over to JFK in September to pay a visit. Um, Absolutely. If- Doors open. <laughs> Thank you, sir. For the, for the people listening out there, is there any way that they can support you or any way, any, any way that, you know, if they're interested in, in, in commissioning your services, where can they do that? Yeah, you could find uh, my services on the Sterling Sound website. Um, you know, where I work with anybody, a lot of people are like, oh, I, don't, I can't afford Sterling Center. I can't do whatever. You know, I work with everybody. Most most guys here will work with anybody. It's about, you know, music and making stuff sound good. It's not about, you know, who you are or whatever. Um, I've always been open to, you know, finding new artists that are going to be the next big thing. So, yeah. Well, let's hope that that discovery continues, the journey continues. And thank you for taking the time to talk, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This was really fun. Great stuff. 